We are back. According to the Week magazine, it was a good week. Last week for learning your lesson with the news that an Arizona man was rushed to the hospital after a rattlesnake that he'd hoped to grill sprang up and bit him on the face. Apparently, Victor Pratt, age 48, was hosting a barbecue when he picked up a snake slithering through his yard intending to show friends how to cook and eat a rattler. But as Pratt posed for photos, the serpent escaped his grip and sank his teeth into him. His guest rushed him to the hospital where he was given anti-venom to save his life. Pratt says he's learned his lesson. Ain't going to play with snakes no more. You know, from a medical standpoint, I'm not sure whether that was wise to give anti-venom. I, I know of a case where somebody died because you can get reactions to anti-venom. But I guess if you're bitten in the face... Uh, and it's really gotten a good bite in you and injected a lot of poison, well, maybe that's the best way to go. Not to second-guess doctors down in Arizona. I do know this. If you're going to grab a live rattlesnake, just be sure of your grip. On the other hand, it was a bad week for the past few weeks for telecommunications with the news that the sun continues to belch out powerful flares. Early last month, the sun erupted in the largest such flare in over a decade, despite the fact that the sun is supposed to be settling down into the, you know, the least violent portion of its 11-year cycle. We can't explain it. Nobody can. It was an ugly week last week for independence movements, at least in Spain, with the news that the Spanish central government did everything possible to make sure they did not have a referendum in Catalonia to break away that portion of Spain and create a separate independent nation. It's strange to contemplate over the millennia, how countries are unified from, from various distinct ethnic groups and then break apart along the ethnic lines, uh, which then reemerge. Thirty years ago, if you went east out of Italy, you were in Yugoslavia. Now, if you do likewise, you're in one of seven different countries, depending on how you slice it. How it was Joseph Broz Tito held together the Croats, the Slovenes, the Montenegrins, the Serbs all together in one nation is... Uh, uh, something we'll never quite understand, but he did it, but now it's broken apart. Perhaps 50 years from now, they will rejoin. Who knows? I think we need a lightning round of some scientific-type topics because we're going to do politics in a minute, and that's always a downer. But um, let's start with this, because I just love the headline. It's, you know, not that worth shaking a story, but I just have to like a headline that starts out with the title, Insubordinate Female Monkeys Band Together. Yes, in case you weren't aware of this fact, evidently rhesus macaques live in strict hierarchies organized around female relationships. It has been noted that low-ranking females are thought to have little social mobility, well, until recently. Research done by Darcy Hannibal here at the University of California at Davis has added some new wrinkles. After studying 357 captive adult female rhesus monkeys who experienced what are described as almost 11,000 conflicts, they were able to sort out what factors led to what's called, what's being called insubordination among the subordinate females. Apparently you're supposed to just bare your teeth to show that you are subordinate to other females, but if you outweigh them by like 
seven kilograms, or if the dominant animal has no family allies, whereas the lower-ranked females do have some pals, well, I guess then sometimes you feel free then to stand up for the dominant females. And in general, here at Radio Parallax, we applaud the policy of standing up to the dominant females. At least among macaques. And here's an odd story. Scientists studying the pattern of lightning strikes across the world noticed that they seem to form some linear patterns over the open sea. And upon further examination, it turned out that these patterns appear consistent with shipping lanes. Apparently shipping lanes get twice, twice as much lightning as they're supposed to, and this is being attributed to the particulate matter coming off the ships, which are wafting up into the atmosphere and evidently uh, providing a path of least resistance down to the sea from the sky. And who knew that the concept of zero is evidently 500 years older than we knew? Yes, evidently carbon dating of a document described as the Balshalai Manuscript shows that the Indians had down that concept of zero at least 500 years earlier than we had previously thought. We admit this is not very important, but evidently it proves to be mildly interesting to some folks. And, and don't get us wrong, we have deep respect for Indian mathematicians who gave us zero and other things. Because if you've ever tried to balance your checkbook using Roman numerals, I think you know what I'm talking about. Now this correspondent hopes to, over this next weekend, have a, have a sit-down with a scientist at Stanford's Linear Accelerator. We have spoken with him briefly on this program in the past. I called him to ask a question or two when there was this thought many years ago they were going to try and create a mini black hole in the laboratory, which didn't strike us as a particularly good idea. But our correspondent was able to assure us that higher energy particles than that, at least what they were going to be able to do with the Large Hadron Collider, strike the Earth every day. And they do. They're somewhat mysterious, these highly energetic cosmic rays, which apparently are particles accelerated near the speed of light. Um, well, because the, the really highly energetic ones don't hit that often. But to get around this, scientists have worked out a system of monitoring something like 3,000 square kilometers of Argentinian grassland, and they're able to uh, make some measurements of these rays slash particles, which, which actually only hit a given square kilometer of the Earth's surface once a year. At any rate, with all this assiduous monitoring over the years, they've detected something like 30,000 of these high-energy cosmic rays and have determined that they apparently are not originating within the Milky Way galaxy. Some people thought they might be, but it looks as though these things are coming from elsewhere. I didn't quite understand the part in the article suggesting that these things are coming from an area 326 million light-years away, but I guess that's what they're finding. The article did note that this region of extragalactic space does contain several potential sources, such as active galactic nuclei and starburst galaxies, neither of which I know a hell of a lot about, so I'm not going to say any more. And uh, how about that zero being pushed back 500 years? Now, that story isn't strange enough, and we thought it was plenty strange, but apparently there's some even more mysterious things out in space that have gotten even weirder. According to new scientists, 15 new fast radio bursts have been spotted, all from the only source of these that we have ever seen repeat. The magazine notes that fast radio bursts 
are some of the universe's strangest phenomenon. They're powerful radio signals that flash from distant space for milliseconds and then disappear. They have been attributed to everything from black holes to aliens, but there's no clear explanation yet. Because they're so brief, and because radio telescopes can only watch a small area of the sky at a time, only about 60 of these bursts have ever been detected. Over half are from the only source ever seen to repeat, described as FRB 121102, which is in a dwarf galaxy about 3 billion light years from Earth. This thing has radio astronomers scratching their head and, and, and us with them. Closer to home, here in our own solar system, we would note that on September 22nd, NASA's OSIRIS spacecraft hurtled around Earth at 8 kilometers a second, giving it the boost it needs to reach out to the asteroid Bennu next August. Since its launch last year, OSIRIS, actually it's OSIRIS-REx, has been circling the sun in Earth orbit just ahead of us. Bennu's, Bennu's orbit is slightly tilted compared to Earth, so the spacecraft had to slingshot around our planet to adjust its path. Its closest approach to Earth came about 17,000 kilometers above Antarctica. OSIRIS-REx will keep cruising for another year, traveling more than 1 billion miles before it reaches Bennu. It's not going to land on the asteroid, but will get close enough to kick up some dust. Apparently, when it's within a few meters of the surface, it will extend its arm and blow out a puff of nitrogen, causing a plume of dust to stream up from Bennu. If that works out, OSIRIS-REx will return to Earth in 2023, marking the first time the U.S. has ever brought back such samples and only the second time that any dust has been retrieved from an asteroid. Now, the Japanese have already accomplished this, apparently, but I don't recall any headlines about what they found regarding their dust. Or did they do it from a comet? I'm not sure. We'll have to do some research on this. Maybe I'll Google the headline, Extraterrestrial Dust Found to be Really Dusty. Now, being kind of a political buff, you might say, I thought I knew a fair amount about how things work in our government, or, or more properly, don't work in our government. But... I was caught quite unawares by a piece in The Economist, a September 30th issue, which I think is the one probably still on the newsstands, under the article titled Conventional Follies, with the intriguing subheadline, a never-previously-used constitutional mechanism may soon create great controversy, even possibly a crisis. I'd like to talk about it. And I just love quoting from The Economist because their writing is so good. The I's had been dotted, the T's were crossed, the 55 delegates to America's first and so far only constitutional convention had hammered out compromises on the separation of powers, apportionment of seats in the legislature, and the future of the slave trade. But on September 15th in 1787, George Mason, a plantation owner from Virginia, rose to his feet to object. Article 5 of the draft text laid out two paths by which future amendments could be proposed. Congress could either propose them itself, or it could summon a convention of representatives from the states to propose them. Mason warned that if the federal government were to become oppressive, Congress would be unlikely to call a convention to correct matters. To protect the people's freedom, he argued, convening power should instead be vested in the states. Should two-thirds of their legislatures call for a convention, Congress would have to accede to their demand, a convention they should have. The Constitution was signed two days later, with Article 5 changed, as Mason had suggested. Since then, 
33 amendments have been proposed, with 27 subsequently ratified, a process which requires approval in three-quarters of the states. Whether the issue was great, abolishing slavery, or small, changing the date of presidential inauguration, all 33 of the proposals came from Congress. Mason's mechanism for change, driven by state legislatures, has never been used. Even politically informed Americans often have no idea it exists. That could soon change. In recent years, the Balanced Budget Amendment Task Force, BBATF, a shoestring group that received just $43,000 in donations in 2015, has been campaigning with great success for such an Article 5 convention. There are now 27 states in which the legislatures have passed resolutions calling for a convention that would propose a balanced budget amendment. The two-thirds of the state's threshold for calling a convention is 34. And as it happens, there are several states which have not yet called for a convention to propose a balanced budget amendment, but in which Republicans control both houses of the legislature. The earliest all seven could plausibly make the call is 2019, because Montana's legislature is not in session again until then. Bill Fruth, a co-founder of the BBATF, says that by that point he hopes to have the other six in the bag. If he does, then a convention would be on the cards. Now, my understanding is if you hold a constitutional convention, you can rewrite the Constitution. But what do I know? I guess in this case, this is a mechanism by which you are simply amending the Constitution. I least hope so. If you get down to another real live constitutional convention that can rewrite everything, we, we are in deep, deep trouble. Our Constitution admittedly has many flaws, but, you know, it's, it's worked okay now for, you know, a couple centuries. Despite the fact that some amendments still need clarification. But I can tell you this, this is something we need to keep an eye on. I think we need to get a scholar on board who's an expert on the Constitution and what this really means because, well, we, we just need some more data. Yeah, it's good to know your limits, and we're, we're, we're at our limit on this one. I, I don't want to speculate any further. We've been sometimes accused of producing a radio program using three magazines, New Scientist, The Week, and The Economist. Well, actually, I'm lying, but I would accuse myself of doing so. While at the same time, I did my best to avoid conviction on the charge. But in last week's program, we talked about a bit of political and economic skullduggery involving electric buses. And we alluded to the New Scientist 9th of September issue, their article titled All Aboard. And I think we're going to read extensively from it for the next five minutes or so, because there's some curious things here. To quote from the article by Mike Hamer, in the first decade of the 20th century, transport reached a tipping point. Would the future belong to petrol, electricity, or even steam? The stage was set for a decisive showdown when the world's first practical electric buses hit the streets of London in July of 1907. They were clean, quiet, reliable, and fume-free, unlike their petrol-powered counterparts, which were widely reviled for their deafening din and evil smells. Electrobuses, as they were called, were an immediate hit with the capital's computers, and the prospect of a successful challenge to the internal combustion engine was greeted with delight by press and public alike. Forecast the Daily News, the doom of the petrol-driven omnibus is at hand. The Electrobus is probably a more formidable rival than the petrol omnibus, not only to the horse omnibus, but also to the tramway. 
That was the conclusion of Douglas Fox, the country's foremost engineer and designer. Noted the magazine, the future of electric vehicles seemed assured. The bus, with its fixed routes and hence predictable demands on batteries, seemed a very promising application. If battery power proved its worth here, then other uses would surely take off. And London, the world's largest city and center of the British Empire, had a track record of setting global trends in technology, so there would be ripples around the world. Yet, in little more than two years, the Electra bus was abandoned in favor of the combustion engine, and we are still suffering the consequences. What went so badly wrong? The article then sets the stage... In 1905, when there were a handful of petrol-powered buses in London, by 1907, there were evidently almost a 1,000 more than Berlin, New York, and Paris put together. It was noted that horses still pulled most buses, but petrol had stolen a march on battery power. But there were problems. Protests about noise and fumes had increased sharply. Newspapers were full of angry letters from the great and the good. One came from a friend of the late Queen Victoria, who wrote to the London Times complaining of the incessant roar and rattle and pestilential atmosphere and dust diffused by these monstrous vehicles. A protest meeting held at the Medical Society of London was told that motor buses ought to be run underground in main drains like other nuisances. During 1907, the police stopped petrol buses 8,500 times because of their appalling noise or noxious fumes. The average London bus was ordered off the road every six weeks. On top of this, they were extremely unreliable. At any time, at least a quarter were out of action. Broken-down buses littered the streets. The Electrobus couldn't have appeared at a better time. Within days of its debut, one of London's largest petrol bus companies went bust. In the summer of 1907, more than 100 petrol buses were scrapped. Yet, the article notes, the marvelously clean, green Electrobus failed to cash in. The history books generally put this down to its undeniably heavy lead-acid batteries. In fact, said the author, the technology worked rather well. The real reason it failed was that a gang of swindlers had a stranglehold on the companies that made and ran it. To them, the Electrobus was not a vehicle for change. It was a vehicle for fraud. I'm tempted to say at this point, stop me if you heard this one. Has this not been a familiar refrain throughout history? Anyway... Back to the article. The originator of the swindle was Edward Ernest Lowe's, an enthusiastic motorist and sometimes second-hand car salesman with a doctorate in law from the University of Zurich. Lewis was an engaging cosmopolitan character, fluent in English, French, and German, and with a well-developed taste for the good life. He was soon joined by Edward Teddy Beale, a flamboyant former solicitor who'd been the brains behind more than 200 share swindles. Beale had only recently been released from prison after serving a four-year sentence for bank fraud. Given their unsavory reputations, both men went to great pains to avoid having their names linked with the new enterprise. Beale, in particular, used dozens of aliases. Noted the magazine, it was a con from the start. In the spring of 1906, the London Electrobus Company announced plans to put 300 electrobuses on the streets of the capital. It offered the public a chance to buy shares worth... 300,000 pounds to finance the project, claiming it had acquired a patent for the huge sum of 20,000 pounds that gave it a monopoly on the Electrobus. Thus it seemed guaranteed that investors would reap enormous profits and the public rushed to invest. Almost immediately, notes the article, inquisitive reporters exposed the scam. One bought a copy of the patent. He discovered it was for a motor vehicle transmission, 
about as relevant to the Electro bus as a patent for a hairdryer. Another reporter visited the West London works where the buses were to be built. Instead of finding a production line, he found former stables next to a pub. Alerted by articles in the papers, angry shareholders demanded their money back. It ended up in court, and the Electrobus company was forced to refund more than 1,000 investors. Despite this initial setback, Lewes wasn't deterred. People's enthusiasm for clean buses and their willingness to support them with hard cash convinced him he had a surefire way of making a lot of money. But first, he had to put some buses on the road. And to do that, he needed reliable batteries. So, Lewis set sail to New York to meet Charles Gould, head of the Gould Storage Battery Company, based near Buffalo. Through a series of meetings in 1906, Lewis convinced Gould to ship batteries and a team of engineers to London. Each battery weighed about 1.7 tons and could power a bus for just 60 kilometers. Recharging took almost eight hours. But Gould's engineers helped devise an innovative way around the problem. The batteries were bolted to the bottom of the bus. After the morning shift, buses returned to the charging station where workers unbolted the batteries, lowered them with hydraulic lift, and took them off to be recharged, replacing them with fresh ones. This lightning pit stop took just three minutes. So, Lewis had his batteries. True to form, he failed to pay what he had promised for them. It would take Gould two years to realize that he, too, had been conned. Meanwhile, after months of rigorous testing, an electrobus picked up its first fares. They soon had six buses on the road, and Lewis and Beale were now ready to take investors for another ride. Beale was a past master at conjuring money from his suckers list with seductive circulars promising quick riches. Between 1907 and 1909, the swindlers banked close to 95,000 pounds, about 10 million pounds today. But of all the money that had been poured into the Electrobus enterprise, just 14,000 pounds was spent on buying buses. And even that was paid to a company controlled by Lewis, who naturally enough was grossly overcharging for them. The end came on Monday, January 3, 1910. Loyal commuters turned up at a Victoria station. The Electrobuses didn't arrive. It's noted that that wasn't quite the end of the road for battery power. Electric delivery vehicles lingered throughout the 20th century, and Electrobuses themselves went on running in Brighton for another seven years. But it was a decisive setback. And notes the article, the swindle didn't just rob Edwardian investors of their nest eggs, it bequeathed a toxic legacy to the world's cities. Today, diesel has widely replaced petrol as the most common fuel for combustion engines. In London alone, nearly 95,000 people a year die prematurely from breathing nitrogen oxides and ultrafine particles, mostly from diesel exhausts. The article does end on a rather happy note, noting that today, uh, today's batteries are much better than they had a century ago. Most modern electrical vehicles use lightweight lithium-ion batteries. And demand for electric cars is soaring. And the electric bus is also making a comeback. There are now 350,000 worldwide, many of them in China. This year, the Chinese city of Shenzhen is due to become the first to run only electric buses. The article concludes by noting the future of transport has just reached another tipping point. But imagine how things might have been if we hadn't missed the opportunity to embrace battery power over a century ago. Apparently, the author Mick Hamer has written a book titled A Most Deliberate Swindle. Might be a pretty good read. That about does it on time. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. We do want to note, in closing, one final datum. 
That is that we have a report from Costa Rica that reports of the demise of the Arenal volcano are evidently somewhat premature. The volcano, as reported in Radio Parallax years ago, tends to pop out large glowing rocks during the night with cannon sounds and had done so for several decades. But evidently, sometime around 2011, this reportedly stopped. I was shocked to learn this a few weeks ago, but I'm happy to note that preliminary inquiries indicate that the volcano is continuing to put on a show, just not quite at the previous clip. Mr. Merlin, make a note. Next week's program, let's see if we can't find some audio of the exploding volcano. All right, I'm Douglas Everett. We'll see you next week at the same time. Because if you use drugs, you better leave it alone. Drugs are contagious. They're killers. Every drug is a killer. Stay away from drugs. Drugs will take your life away. And if you want to live, stay away from drugs. Because they are super bad, super bad, super bad, super bad, super bad.